Hey everyone, welcome to the revamped first episode of Last Chance Astronomy. I'm your host, Chance Spencer, a physics grad student with a passion for astronomy. Today, October 26, 2020, I'm coming to you with two stories. Uh, one was published today in the journal Nature Astronomy, and the other was issued by the Planetary Science Institute, PSI, in Tucson, Arizona. And so the first story that I'm going to talk about is about SOFIA, which is the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. And I'll get into a little about what that name means in a bit. But basically, the big headline news is, is that they have direct and unambiguous evidence of water molecules on the moon. And so the reason that this is important or different from previous discoveries is that this is outside of the permanent shadow at the lunar poles. And so that's the only previous place that they knew of before. And so what SOFIA is, this infrared observatory, is a modified Boeing 747 SP jetliner with a 2.7 meter or 106 inch diameter telescope. And it flies at altitudes of up to 45,000 feet so that it can observe infrared radiation. And it's operated by both the U.S. Space Agency, NASA, and the German Aerospace Center, DLR. And so the reason that it has to fly up to altitudes of up to 45,000 feet is that it can reach above 99% of the water vapor in Earth's atmosphere, which basically or typically obscure observations from the ground. A explanation that my professor likes to give a lot is ground-based infrared astronomy is basically like trying to observe the stars in the middle of daytime from the bottom of a swimming pool. And so the, the bottom of a swimming pool thing is attributed to atmospheric turbulence because although we don't see it visibly that often, although we do see the stars twinkle when we look up at the sky, in infrared wavelengths, it is just, it's much harder to observe. Plus the fact that water molecules in the atmosphere kind of light up, and that's why they, he says in the daytime, um, it's really hard to observe from the ground. And so that's why we either have things in the orbit, like the James Webb Space Telescope that's going to be coming up in the future and observing in the infrared wavelengths, uh, but we also have SOFIA, which is a Boeing 747 that can actually come down after each observation, and we can change the equipment in it and constantly keep it on the cusp of new technology and, and new discoveries, new missions. But basically, this mission was designed, SOFIA mission, was designed to look at distant dim objects such as black holes, star clusters, and galaxies. And so this recent discovery is actually a departure from business as usual, because instead of looking at these dim things, they decided to look at Earth's nearest and brightest neighbor, the moon. And so uh, the telescope operators aboard SOFIA typically use a guide camera on the side to track stars and keeping the telescope steadily locked on its observing target. Because basically, I think a few nights ago, my professor said that trying to observe with SOFIA is like trying to uh, make observations while in a, a pool of jello. Because you can think of when you're flying, you experience atmospheric turbulence, the plane kind of shakes, and it's not like there's a giant hole and you fell in it, but more just like, it's like jello, like the whole thing is turbulent and moving and you're just passing through it and sometimes you have to succumb to the motions of the medium that you're in. And so Sophia also has assistance of many computers, algorithms, and gyroscopes to keep it steady, because otherwise you'd be taking these long exposures and the images would be smeared all over the place. But since the moon is so close and bright, it fills the guide camera's entire field of view. And so with no stars visible, it was unclear to them, the scientists, whether the telescope could reliably track the moon. 
And so to determine this, in August 2018, the operators decided to try a test observation. Well, luckily, and to their surprise, this initial test observation back in August 2018 led to this discovery that they published today. And so they used the faint object infrared camera for the SOFIA telescope, known as FORECAST, because, you know, astronomers love their obscure acronyms. So SOFIA was able to pick up a specific wavelength unique to water molecules at about 6.1 microns and discovered a relatively surprising concentration in the sunny Clavius crater in the moon's southern hemisphere. So Clavius crater is actually one of the largest craters visible from Earth. And previous observations of the moon surface detected some forms of hydrogen, but they were unable to distinguish between water and its close chemical relative, hydroxyl, which is just OH. So instead of H2O, it only has one hydrogen. And uh, we're going to mention this later on. But data from this location revealed that water is in concentrations of 100 to 412 parts per million, roughly equivalent to about a 12-ounce bottle of water trapped in a cubic meter of soil spread across the lunar surface. The results are published in the latest issue of Nature Astronomy, which I mentioned in the beginning. As a comparison, the Sahara Desert has 100 times the amount of water than what Sophia detected in the lunar soil. Despite the small amounts, the discovery raises new questions about how water is created and how it persists in the harsh, airless lunar surface. Alessandra Roy, Sophia Project Scientist at the DLR Space Administration, said that we have been looking for water on the moon since the first lunar rocks were brought back to Earth in the 1960s. However, most of these samples showed no evidence of its presence. In 2008, NASA's Moon Mineralogy Mapper on aboard the Indian Chandrayaan-1 mission demonstrated that the presence of water was only in the moon's dark polar regions. But now, this new discovery, just to reemphasize how it differs from our uh, understanding of water on the moon. Sophia has been able to de demonstrate that water also exists in areas of the moon's surface that are illuminated by the sun. And that's really, that's encouraging. And so where does this water come from? Uh, just to give you some perspective of the lunar surface that is sunlit, the sunlit parts of the moon can reach temperatures of, of up to approximately 230 degrees Celsius. So having typically no atmosphere, there is no protection for its water which at this temperature evaporates under the heat of the light from the sun. So currently there's two explanations or theories as to why there is presence of water on the surface of the moon at all. Some scientists believe that micrometeorites, for instance, could be falling onto the moon's surface carrying small quantities of water that could deposit the liquid within the rock upon impact. And in this process, the water becomes enclosed in tiny glass bead-like structures on the ground. You can imagine if you've ever seen one of those videos where one of the astronauts in, in the ISS uh, squirts water out of a little test tube or something, and it kind of gloops together. It's, it's interesting how water behaves in different environments, both atmospherically and gravitationally. However, there is also the possibility that a two-stage process might be occurring in which hydrogen from the solar wind reaches the moon's surface, where it combines with the oxygen-bearing minerals in the soil, such as hydroxyl, which we mentioned earlier, OH, and this being a hydrogen atom bound to an oxygen atom, and this combination forming water, so OH plus H equals H2O. And radiation from the bombardment of micrometeorites could also be transforming that hydroxyl into water as well, different from the, the solar wind contribution. 
The data acquired by SOFIA indicates that most of the water that has been detected lies within a substrate covering the lunar surface. So now, SOFIA will be trying to observe the moon's sunlit surface during different lunar phases to investigate how this water phenomenon changes over time and just to study this in greater detail. Because we know that water is a precious resource in deep space, it's a key ingredient to life, and uh, SOFIA could actually be able to determine whether it's an easily accessible resource, because if it is, that could help complement the findings of future moon missions. And it'll also give insight into where water on the moon comes from, how it's stored, and how it's distributed across the lunar surface. I'll mention that in the next story. But for instance, just to give some examples of future moon missions, NASA's Artemis program is eager to learn about the presence of water on the moon in advance to sending their first woman and man to the lunar surface, which they estimate or hope to do by 2024, as well as their second goal, which is to establish a sustainable human presence there by the end of the decade. And so by discovering easily accessible water as a resource on the moon would greatly impact that NASA decision, that NASA program. And also one of the objectives of ESA, the European Space Agency's Space Resource Strategy, is to for instance, on the moon, confirm whether resources such as water could enable sustainable space exploration. And so I'm kind of going to end that story now just to tie it into this next story before just emphasizing that this is really big news because this basically impacts the next decade or so of, I guess, not interplanetary, but space travel, at least to the moon and back. And so the other story that I wanted to get to was recently issued by the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson, also today, and it was titled Small Water Ice Reservoirs Dot the Lunar Surface, and it's referencing a new paper called Micro Cold Traps on the Moon that appeared recently in the journal Nature Astronomy, also, which was the first story was published in. And before I get into it, I just want to recommend the, the Netflix show Mars, season one, where it's kind of half documentary, half drama. It really gives a nice preview into how our first initial colonies or, or science stations, whatever you want to call them, will heavily depend on their approximate location to the nearest water source, as well as in Mars, uh, at least in season one, they have a base that's in this uh, cave kind of below the surface to protect against cosmic rays and the lack of atmosphere and other things like that. So that heavily depended, though, upon finding water as a resource. And so with that in mind, just trying to set the scene, imagine in which a weekly or almost every other day kind of chore would be to go extract ice and water from these craters. And so, just to quote one of the senior scientists from PSI, future lunar rovers may have a hard time driving into a large dark crater with extremely low temperatures. Small cold traps are far more accessible. And approximately 10 to 20% of the permanent cold trap area for water is found to be contained in these micro cold traps. In terms of numbers, most cold traps are smaller than one meter. And so the main headline of the story is that small shadowed cold traps scatter across the lunar polar regions and could contain up to 20% of the frozen water on the moon, making accessing water sources easier for lunar visitors. And just to end with a second quote, I think the way this changes our perspective of water on the moon is that until now, our efforts were focused on the largest reservoirs situated within the broadest and deepest craters at high latitudes. 
but we now understand that we expect a large number of much smaller reservoirs of water. The smaller deposits could be more accessible for at least two reasons. The distance to the nearest one from a hypothetical landing site might be shorter, and the deposit would not be surrounded by imposing tall crater rims, but rather much gentler slopes. So these two uh, stories that I wanted to highlight, I just felt I want to get this story out as soon as possible. My biggest hindrance in releasing these episodes is that I focus so much on wanting to do this little intro and explaining what this podcast is to me and what I hope to do with it and what I want to talk about that I never ever get to the like I don't the meat of it like this is this is an example and I think I might leave up the original episode one for a while just to kind of I don't know look back on and compare to but I wanted to highlight these two because I feel like in terms of leaving Earth, I mean, we haven't been off since, I think, the 70s, and so it's just, it's it's hopeful news, and I just wanted to explain that to people who are interested about, what's this news about the moon? Because I, NASA's been teasing it for at least a week, and I've been wondering, oh, on Monday we have some exciting news that we're going we're gonna to talk about, and so I signed up for the AAS press release so that I can get the the basically the astronomy news from all these institutes forwarded to me uh, through AAS as a member of independent press because this is my podcast where I want to basically kind of be another perspective another source because there aren't a lot of astronomy podcasts there's aren't there aren't a lot of astronomy podcasts that cover all up-to-date news and there's not a lot of podcasts that also try to, if they do do all those things, um, try to make it more understandable to the average audience because that's one of the main goals that I can just basically say now. If I ever get to my intro episode, then maybe I will, but uh, I'm thinking maybe I'll just show along the way rather than just saying I'll just do. So thanks for tuning into this really long episode, I don't know, um, you know, it's kind of improv because I do have a midterm to study for classical mechanics on Thursday, but I want to get into the habit of reporting on astronomy news that I think is important and just trying to put it out there uh, and stop getting in my head trying to micro-edit every little thing because I listen to podcasts that are three hours, <laughs> um, I, I just started a podcast that's five hours, that's going to be a, a while, but I might give it a week and I'll finish it. But I just want to provide another news thing because I, I don't think that although astronomy is one of the most popular sciences to the general public in a magazine, newspaper, online articles, etc., the general sciences, I don't think there are a lot, I don't know, it's a, it's a small market. And I think there is opportunity for it. And I think that when you see a niche in the world, you should take the opportunity to fill it. So here is me trying to contribute to science communication, particularly emphasizing astronomy and physics. But now just ad-libbing, instead of just having some pre-written document where I get mad that I screwed it up, I think I've kind of explained the gist of my podcast so i hope that you tune in for future episodes i actually wrote an entire episode and recorded an entire episode back in july about a article called the the south the south pole wall yeah 
And so I wrote all that, but I got so much in my head that I never released it. And so I'm just going to get into the habit of it because not a lot of my friends or family are probably going to record or listen to every, all of these, but there is a population out there of astronomy enthusiasts that are looking for these things. Just like I look for on Spotify and I'm like, where are all the astronomy podcasts? There's only like a few and most of them stopped putting effort in like last year, the year before they only put out 10 and then they give up. I hope I don't do that. But even if I do, I've at least put out episodes that are still recent enough. Most of the discoveries that we make in astronomy nowadays are so recent that they won't be dated for quite a few decades. I hope you enjoy these podcasts. I hope you tune in in the future, and I hope you learn something.